Hi there, I am Sarah Jane Case, and I am the host of your new favorite show, Enneagram and Coffee. This podcast is dedicated to discussing the beautiful and hard parts of being human. We use the tool, the Enneagram, a personality map that has taken over the world for increased self-compassion, personal growth, and healthier relationships. If this sounds up your alley, listen to Enneagram and Coffee on the iHeart app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts online. Hello, everyone. Today, I am chatting with Joanne Cazzo. Joanne is a pediatric professional with a passion for supporting parents and caregivers of young children in the areas of play and speech language. As a pediatric speech language pathologist, she specializes in identifying and clinically supporting late talkers. She provides therapy services to pediatric clients in the Northern New Jersey area and supports families through caregiver education and coaching throughout the US. In today's episode, we talk about five signs that your toddler may need speech therapy, how you can promote language development at home, what to do if you suspect that your child may have a speech and or language delay, and much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everybody, welcome Joanne Cazzo to the show today. I'm so excited to have you. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. Can't wait to jump into some good conversation. Yeah, this is going to be a great topic. I feel like this is always the chit chatter between moms when their kids are starting to learn how to talk and just their language in general. It's always, is my kid like on task with everything or are we falling behind? Are we ahead? So it's just, it's always a a question that moms have, right? And had it with my own kids and I've definitely noticed differences between my kids and all of it normal. So this is going to be a great podcast to let everybody know when it might not be as normal and when you might need to seek help. So I would love to start off with what is a speech language pathologist? What is speech therapy? And what can a specific pediatric speech language pathologist do to help my child? Yeah. So a speech language pathologist is a professional that diagnoses, treats speech language disorders. So we like to put that under the umbrella of communication. So that can be broken up into lots and lots of different things, which I will try not to bore you with that, but that can include articulation, cognition, being able to put words together. So your language, being able to put your messages together, dysphagia, which is trouble with swallowing, and then also hearing and other communication disorders. So a speech language pathologist works with adults, and also with pediatric populations. And specifically, a pediatric speech language pathologist can work on a lot of things that an adult speech language pathologist works on. But in pediatrics, what we do tend to see a lot on our caseloads are lots of late talkers, some children who have trouble with fluency, which is stuttering, children who have trouble understanding language, and then children who have trouble producing sounds. So you might hear some of our younger ones saying wabbit instead of rabbit. So those are some of the kind of like the common things that people will pick up. Speech language pathologists can work on a lot, but particularly in my practice and what I specialize in right now, I do see lots and lots of late talkers. So 
what age range are we as parents, are we looking at as far as starting to just observe a little bit more intensely how our children are speaking and using their language? What age range are we talking? Yeah. So around 12 months, we would expect our kiddos to have one to five words. So usually around 12 months is when I will see some of my earlier clients come into my practice where parents will say that they're either not babbling yet, they're not starting to combine some sounds, so like some consonant vowel sounds like ba-ba or da-da, and or that they have no single word. So by their first birthday, we would expect them to have at least one word and up to five words. So usually that's when I really see families coming into my practice is when that first word has it come in. And then again, at the 18 month mark, we would expect our kids to have 10 to 50 words. And sometimes I tell my parents 10 to 50 and their eyes get really, really big because they're like, oh, my child is nowhere near that. So what I tell them is that the first number is the milestone. So that's 10. And then the second number is the average, right? So that would be the 50 words. And the milestone is what 90% of children are doing. And the average is what 50% of children are doing. So when we say 10 to 50 words, we're expecting them to make at least 10 words. If they have more, that's great, right? Because there are some other children who have up to 50, but we want to see at least 10 words. So I would say at the 12 to 18 month mark, that's when parents should really be curious about how their children are communicating and how they're understanding language. Now, do you typically have, are are all of these like referrals from pediatricians or are sometimes some of the families like skipping that and just going right and like just, just getting an evaluation without having a referral or what is typically the scenario? So families will come in through a variety of different avenues. So I will have some families that are self-referred. So they will be concerned about their child's communication. So they'll start to reach out to a few local practices. Sometimes I will get a direct referral from another professional, like a pediatrician or an audiologist or an ENT, or sometimes classroom and daycare staff will notice something and they'll chat with the family and bring up their concerns. And that will usually lead to the, to the initial visit or the initial call. Or sometimes the family will visit early intervention, or they'll seek out early intervention, which is a state-based program that is available in all 50 states, where it differs from state to state. But usually, as long as the child is younger than three, but in some states younger than five, they can get an assessment from the state and then have professionals come into their homes and provide a variety of services like speech, occupational therapy, physical therapy, developmental intervention, and whatever services that they might need. So usually I will see families are either self-referred or they're being referred by the daycare, the school, another professional, or an early intervention professional. Okay, so what are some of the signs that we're looking for as parents? Like in that age range that you first mentioned, which is like the 12 to 18 months, I know you said words. And then as they grow a little bit older, when should our alarm bells start ticking off? Yeah, so I usually like to give nice signs for two and three years old. So at two years old, if our little ones are having less than 50 words, that could be a good indication to seek out a referral to seek out an evaluation by a speech language pathologist. And I like to specify that it has to be a speech language pathologist. A lot of times I'll get families that will say, well, their daycare assessed them. And I'll say, well, who was the professional who assessed them? And sometimes it'll be a daycare teacher or just another paraprofessional that doesn't have the expertise 
and that doesn't have the professional lens that a speech language pathologist will be using to be able to make that diagnosis. So always seek out a licensed speech language pathologist. So if your two-year-old is producing under 50 words, and again, this is another thing where I get really big eyes and parents are like, oh gosh. So when I say words, they can include words that are produced verbally, like the baby saying baba for a bottle or just saying bottle. They can include a word approximation. So that would be something that sounds like a word, but it's pretty consistent and you know what they're talking about. So if they say daddy every time your dog is in the room or they're pointing and saying daddy to your dog, then you know that that means doggy, even though it's not the true adult form of the word, that would still count as a word. If they're using basic signs, that also counts as a word as long as it's consistent and it is produced without a prompt. So when I say 50 words, I am looking at words that are produced spontaneously, which means that you're not going, say mama, say mama, say mama, and they're they're going mama. So that's them. When we're looking at the 50 words, we want them to be able to produce that language themselves. It has to be within the context of what's happening in their surroundings, and it has to be unprompted inconsistent. Also, if at two years old, your child is not beginning to combine words. So at two years old, we would want them to put at least two words together. So more water, or want cookies, or go out. We want, we expect them to start putting some of those two word combinations together. So if they're having difficulty, and if they're definitely not at the single word level, that's cause to go see a speech language pathologist. Also, if they have difficulty making certain sounds like the P sound, the B sound, the M sound, some of those back throaty sounds like K's and G's, and then some of those more airy sounds like F, and then the stopping sounds like T, D, N, and then a really simple sound, which is just the blowing sound, which is the H sound or the breathy sound. If they are having difficulty producing those sounds, since we would expect them to have mastered those sounds by two years old. That's another thing to look into for a speech-language pathology referral. And then the last two I would say is, if they're not following simple directions, pick up your shoes or give to Dada, that might point to a receptive language difficulty, which means that they're having trouble understanding oral messages. And then I think the final clue would be, if they're not using words on their own, So again, going back to some of those words, if they're needing a prompt every time in order to say the word that you want them to say, then that might point to some expressive language difficulties, which is being able to put thoughts and messages together to express immediate wants and needs. So if you are a parent and you have these concerns about your child, if it's one of these five things, or maybe it's all of them, would your first step be obviously the pediatrician and talking to them about it? Yeah. So I will usually tell families to talk to their pediatrician. If I was talking to a family that wasn't coming into my practice, I would tell the families to contact your pediatrician. What can sometimes unfortunately happen is that families will seek out their pediatrician and they will get a very antiquated response, which is, why don't we wait and see? Or why don't we circle back in three months and see? We are. And the reality is not only is that an antiquated mindset and an early childhood development, but it also is taking away time and with early development, right? Time is always of the essence. That's why it's called early intervention, right? The sooner that we can get in front of that child, the better because we can give them the strategies and the supports that they need. So 
that happens. I can't say that it happens very often, but I have heard it lots of times in my practice. Families will go to their pediatrician and then the pediatrician will say, let's just wait and see. And then they do wait and see. And then the child just doesn't make any more progress. So the time that laps in between is time that the family could have sought out services. Do you suggest kind of like, do you just say like for the parent to just ask another pediatrician or like, what are your, what are your next steps if that is happening? Yeah. So I always tell the family that you know your child best, right? So if you feel that there is a concern, definitely seek out another opinion. And if your insurance plan, if you're planning to go through insurance, doesn't require that you have a prescription or a referral, just start looking up the numbers and contacts of local speech language pathologists. There are a lot of us, there aren't enough of us, but there are a lot of us. So chances are that there is someone who's local to you, even if you have to drive a few minutes out, and they would be more than happy to do the assessment for you. And what I tell my families is, and I tell all my families this, We would rather do an assessment and kind of have a clear mind at the end and say, okay, we don't really see anything here. There's no concern than to not do the assessment and just be, I don't want to say wasting time because that's not very kind, but to let time slip out of our hands because the more time that they have to get intervention, the better the outcome usually is. And did you mention with early intervention that you have to do it before age three? With some states. So yeah. with some states, the the intervention that's provided, the services that are provided are only provided until three years old. And mm-hmm. in some states, they're provided until five. So I do also tell my families, because there are some families who do just want to seek out private services, but the early intervention services might be free of cost to them, depending on their state or depending on their cost sharing. So the more intervention that that child can get, the better. And there's a different range of services that you can get. And the very best part about early intervention, which kind of helped me frame my model for my therapeutic practice in my own practice is that the therapist comes into your home. And I really find that one, that is like the most luxurious thing ever, right? The person is coming into your home and they're providing the services in your home. So it, it's of convenience to you because I just can't imagine how difficult it is to have to manage schedules and then work schedules. And there's just a lot going on. So the therapist comes into your home. And what I find really beautiful about that is for a lot of our kiddos, they are spending a lot of time in the home. So what better place to provide the intervention than in the natural space where they are every day, where we can use their toys, their materials. We can use their siblings sometimes for intervention. We can use grandma, grandpa, whoever's in the home. And that way we know that when we shut that door and we walk into our cars, there are systems already in place to support carryover. So I really do encourage early intervention to families that either don't know about it or aren't sure sure about it. And then they can always seek out private services in addition to makes sense. And in some states, Um, it's free, by the way. Yeah, no, that's amazing. But I also important, though, to know that it could be like completely unavailable to you if you're seeking this out after age three in some states, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's like, it's one of those things where it's, are you kidding me that more people don't know about this? Because if you were, you know, one of those people that went to your pediatrician, and then they told you to wait, and mm-hmm. now they're three and a half. You, you know what I mean? It's just one of and those things. Missed, yeah, you would have missed You missed time that boat. That's, yeah, that's yeah. really unfortunate. So I always do tell everyone, if you have a concern, believe that you know your child best. Let's all be wrong at the end of this assessment. And there's nothing wrong. 
or your child needs services, but at least you were able to advocate for yourself and for your family and for your child. And then we were able to get on it. So if you do have Mm -hmm. concerns, don't be afraid to seek out help. This podcast episode is brought to you by Bobby. Bobby is an organic infant formula with a European inspired formula crafted in America, delivered right to your doorstep that meets all the FDA requirements and is founded by moms. This is the formula I used with our last baby when I noticed my supply dropping. Bobby is the only USDA organic clean label certified formula in the US. Their medical team consists of OBGYN pediatricians, researchers, pediatric dietitians, and nurses, lactation consultants, and one doula. When it comes to ingredients, they believe every ingredient counts and choosing anything less than top quality is irresponsible. I love that they're trying to change the script of feeding babies formula. As a mother, we have so much to worry about and how our baby is fed does not need to be one of them. They want to provide moms with confidence, not comparison. Normalize feeding and shift the stigma from how you feed to what you feed. You can use the code MOTHERHOODMEETSMEDICINE10 for 10% off your order. That's MOTHERHOODMEETSMEDICINE10 for 10% off. This podcast episode is brought to you by PrepDish. I know that we're all in the same boat when I say life feels pretty crazy sometimes. With four kids, it's hard to keep everything straight. Prepping lunches, managing the calendar, working, carpooling the kids everywhere. It's a lot. Prepping for dinners is one task that I no longer have to put much thought into. Thanks to PrepDish. PrepDish is a healthy meal planning service that is designed to make prepping dinners easier for you. The prep takes about one to two hours and frees up your time throughout the rest of the week. Here's how it works. At the beginning of the week, you will get an email with four different meal plan options, gluten-free, paleo, low carb, or super fast. You download the PDF of the meal plan you want to follow for that week, and it will show you the groceries needed along with a step-by-step prepping process to get your meals all prepped for the entire week. The meals have been delicious so far. We recently tested out the super fast dinner list and the chicken fettuccine Alfredo was amazing. If you want to try out prep dish and gain some of your free time back, you can go to prepdish.com slash Lindsay, that's L-Y-N-Z-Y for a two week free trial. Again, that's prepdish.com slash Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y for your first two weeks free. Let me know what you think. Are there things that we can be doing as our kids? Obviously, many moms and dads are are busy on a day-to-day basis, but what can we be doing with our kids other than just handing them a bottle and saying bottle or saying dog? Or are there other things that we can be doing within the home to promote language? Yeah. So there are a million things. I love this question. So there are lots and lots of things. First of all, I completely understand the fact that parents are really, really busy. And I think that there is this misunderstanding that because some families are now working from home, that they now have more time to spend with their families. Some of the expectations that are placed on them at work Sometimes it's the same and sometimes it's even worse now that they're virtual. So I understand that families are stressed for time. So what I tell families is take advantage of routines. So if there are things that are already happening in your day, like caretaking routines, like diapers or diaper changing or preparing a meal 
or play routines like going out to the park, take advantage or chores like doing the laundry or cooking food. Take advantage of that time because that time that you're already, you were already planning to spend that time doing whatever routine that you were doing anyways. So it doesn't hurt to have your child there and to model language for them. Sometimes it feels a little weird and you might feel like the narrator of a book because you're talking about what you're doing. Oh, let's mix, mix, mix. We're mixing food, right? It sounds really silly and you feel like a caricature of yourself. But I think what some families are hopefully beginning to understand is that in being able to narrate what's happening in your environment, you're providing the language to your child that you would want them to use either now or later on. So I always tell my families to take advantage of routines. That is the easiest way to facilitate language and learning for your child without having to do anything extra. I think that a lot of times parents think that they have to sit down and do the structured thing like, okay, we're going to sit down and do the book and then maybe we might have some some manipulatives that go with the book, or maybe we're going to sit down and do cars and work on ready, set, go. But there is so much language around us that it doesn't necessarily always need to be structured. I think the other thing is also modeling for your child, especially if you think that there's a delay, but even in the absence of suspicion of a delay, modeling language for your child throughout the day. Another thing is making sure that your child understands that they have to do something to get something. So the reason why I don't say say something to get something is because some children are more comfortable using gestural language as they acquire verbal language. So they're, they are more comfortable with using gestures and basic signs. So if your child signs for more, they get more of whatever it is. So start to have your child understand the correlation between saying or doing something to get something. So I think that a lot of parents tend to be anticipatory in nature. And there is nothing wrong with that. That kind of goes along with the idea that you know your child best. And if you get into a really good groove, you might know exactly when they're going to be hungry, or when they're going to be sleepy, or when they need to play, or know what kind of snack maybe they might want for snack time. But I tell parents to try to be less anticipatory, even if you know exactly what your child wants. See what they'll do to communicate that to you. Maybe they'll produce a sign if you've been introducing signs. Maybe they'll have a word approximation. Maybe they'll have a single sound like b for bottle. And you can say, oh, wow, you want your bottle. Come on, let's go get your bottle. And then you can talk about taking the bottle out of the cabinet and filling up the bottle, right? And then drinking from the bottle. So really creating the expectation that they need to do something in order to be not rewarded, but in order to get what it is that they're wanting. And then also manipulating the environment. So sometimes my my initial three sessions for a lot of my families, and I will tell them this after the eval, is doing lots of reframing. So sometimes I will walk into a home where all of the toys are at toddler level and all the snacks are at toddler level. And there's really just no need almost for a child to request. So I will tell families to move things up on a shelf to put things away in a cabinet. That way it creates a situation where your child has to come to you, right? Even if they don't have the single words yet, they have to come to you and request for help. And that's a perfect opportunity to model. Because I do see a lot of kiddos who just have access to everything. And then I don't know about you, but if there was like a $1,000 laying on the floor, all the time and I needed it, I would just walk over and grab one and I wouldn't have to ask for permission, right? Or I wouldn't have to communicate to anyone that I needed to borrow a dollar. So it's like that same 
mindset. So I think those are probably some of the biggest tips that I would love to share with families. Yeah. All right. So I have some questions for you about just specific things that you hear along the way as a parent and you're like, okay, does it really affect either my child's speech or their language development? What are your thoughts on, so two different things. One is pacifiers and then the second is going to be bottles, baby bottles. Yeah. So baby bottles are just fine. I think I just tell parents to be mindful of how they transition to an open cup or straw cup. So usually families will go into the sippy cup and the sippy cup is not targeting a different skill from the bottle. So what I will tell my families is that once baby is comfortable using the bottle and they're demonstrating that skill to try presenting an open cup with very minimal volume. So again, we know that children are just learning to use their motor skills and like maneuver having an open container, right? So we can anticipate that there might be a mess. So what I tell families is that you can introduce the open cup with very, very little liquid and then try water to start (laughs) unless you want your, your house to become like a beautiful canvas of colored liquid is to try very little liquid and then just kind of like give it a whirl with water. So we do want children to start to transition if very possible at six months from the pacifier. I know that for a lot of kiddos, the pacifier can be a comfort item and that some families will say they they use the pacifier to be able to fall asleep. And then once they fall asleep, it falls out. And I tell families that that's okay. If they're using it as a comfort item before they go to sleep, that that's okay. But where we would show concern is that if they're having access to the pacifier throughout the day, and then also if they're trying to communicate with the pacifier in their mouth. So what I tell families is if they think that the child is one to try to set up a weaning plan for removing the pacifier, the pacifier can, if there is extended use, it can cause shifting in some of the teeth as children are using it very on an extended period, especially if some of their permanent teeth start to come in is that it can really change the structure of the mouth. And it can really promote some oral habits like tongue thrusting, which we really don't want to see. So if it's possible to start weaning off of that pacifier. Also, you can provide some other comfort items, right? So if that child wants to be comforted, maybe introducing a blankie or a teddy bear or something else that can provide comforting feelings and seeing doing trial and error because it's not always successful, but doing trial and error and seeing if that works. And then also setting a time where the pacifier can be available. And then I forgot my third point that I was going to make, which is a little bit embarrassing. I'm thinking, Lizzie. (laughs) <laughs> Where are we going? This is like the story of my life. Yeah, so. I'm just like I'm talking. I'm talking. This is and I have another point. <laughs> a piece of paper and a pen, and literally as you're talking, I like because I think of all these things, and then by the time I'm like ready to to talk back to you, it's oh crap! Like I had all these oh. things that I wanted to mention that you had said, and then I forget. <laughs> yeah, that just happened to me. So if it comes back to me, I will let you know. But I do try to tell families as much as possible to start to try to transition off of the pacifier just because it can promote some poor aura habits. Oh, I knew what I was thinking of. So what I was thinking of is sometimes kiddos will use the pacifier for oral sensory seeking behaviors, right? So if they're seeking that oral input in their mouth, there are other ways to be able to provide that. And that's something that might have to be determined by an occupational therapist. Or sometimes you can make observations just yourself. At that point, 
right, you can offer something that is going to give them some of that same input that's still appropriate for them to put in their mouths, like a chewy tube or a teether or something else that kind of gives them some of that same input that they're seeking out that is not going to shift the structure of the mouth. So I'm in this camp of file this under things that you might necessarily not want to do. But I so baby number four, and this just goes to show you it doesn't matter how many kids you've birthed and raised. It's always something. None of my three first kids took a pacifier. They were like, no, thank you. Want nothing to do with this. My first had such bad colic that I must have tried to have her take a pacifier for four months because I was like, please take this because I thought you you think maybe this will help soothe you. Like I can't listen to this anymore, you know? Anyway, none of them took it. And then my fourth was like, this is the best thing ever. I love pacifiers. So this little nugget, she's two, of course, still on a pacifier and just, and I'm in of the mindset of, of course, now I'm a mom of four, I'm working and I don't have time for this. <laughs> it's like weaning off. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, and I'm only saying that because it's, it's always hard as a mom or a parent in general to have guidelines and it's not always going to go the way that you want it to go. And I think a good way to start is always to, during the day when they're awake, is to just touch them and play with them. And my little one will go off to like a little preschool thing a couple hours a week and I'll try to pull the pacifier, but they forget about it. If they're like, out and about and doing things. And it's a good way to meet them off. But she won't stop talking. I think obviously I'd be pushed in the other direction to get a right off of it if she wasn't. But it's like, it's so hard. It really is. So I hear you if you're listening and it's, oh no, shoot, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. And some kiddos will be very verbal, but they'll still hang on to the pacifier, right? So there, there isn't necessarily a correlation there. But like when we start to seeing the kiddos having the pacifier in their mouth and then they're talking and then they're trying to produce sounds and then there are errors or like their tongue is just not having the free space to be able to move because there's this big old thing in my mouth, then like that causes a lot of concern. But I know that it's very difficult. And sometimes parents will know that the pacifier works in terms of soothing, right? Like the baby is just having a hard time or your toddler's having a hard time. And you know that the pacifier works just to kind of like give yourself a break. I know that sometimes it might be easy to just go, here you go. But yeah, as, as much as you are able to in that environment and as much as your child will, kind of tolerating tolerate it making the pacifier go for like two hours okay like the pacifier is sleeping right now and it's like the day but you can play and you can go outside and you can do so much else and kids do forget about it yeah no they do they do yeah. I don't think she'll ever forget about it for her nap but yeah, yeah we'll get there eventually <laughs> I think so Okay, so let's talk a little bit about screen time. Mm. Is screen time harmful to their development? And like, how often do you suggest to limit that, that screen time if it is? Yeah, so the screen time question is like always a big question. And I think that the response is very nuanced. There is a response that I like from We Talkers. They're an Instagram account of a speech pathologist and I think another early childhood specialist. And I'm happy to share that for some of the show notes. But I really, really liked her take on screen time, which is like the spiel that I've been using as well, which is the three C's. So it's content, context, and then your child. So you know your child best, right? So the amount of screen time that is too much or too little 
for them, you'll be able to determine that. So you'll know when your child has had enough screen time or too much screen time. So that would be your child in the part of the three C's. And then next would be content. So not all content is created equal. I think that sometimes it can be easy to just open up YouTube, see whatever like childhood show might be on like Cocomelon or something else and just kind of like pop it on and just like pop baby down. And children are maybe I should use like another example, but sometimes there are some shows that aren't necessarily providing some of the most appropriate content for some of our little friends, or it's content that is not developmentally appropriate or content that they are really just not really understanding with the skills that they have. So it doesn't really relate to their everyday. And then context would be third. What are they watching the show and what is the context in which they are consuming this content, whether it's like a game or a show that they're watching or music-based activities that they're consuming on the screen. One of the things that I like to tell parents is what is the connection between what they're watching and what's happening in their everyday? So while they're watching the show, I encourage parents, if they're going to do some screen time, which screen time is okay, sitting down and co-viewing and then seeing what connections you can make between what's on the screen and what's in their everyday. Because there are some ways to consume screen time where you can make it relatable to what's going on there every day. You can still target language. You can stop and go and talk about what's on the screen. So I think that no, screen time in itself is not harmful to a child's development. I think it depends on these three things, right? What kind of content are they consuming? And is the content that they're consuming does it relate or connect at all to what they're experiencing in their everyday? And how can you make that connection for them? And how can you make that viewing experience an experience that's still developmentally rich and language rich? All right. I think I have one more for you before we can jump into the community's questions. So have you seen any increase in your caseload post-COVID? I think everybody has this question, right? Like a lot of people want to link mask wearing to a delay in speech or a delay in language development. So I'm, that's where I'm coming from with that. Yeah. So I have seen an increase in the amount of referrals that are coming into my practice. I will say mask wearing does have its implications on language and speech development for little ones in terms of the fact that children are not getting access to the way that a person's mouth, face, lip, or mouth, face, lips. Did you hear that? That was silly. The way that, <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> that was silly. The way that a person's lips and teeth and tongue and eyebrows are moving while they're producing sounds and producing language. So I think in, in terms of being able to get access to visual cues, children are definitely not getting that. So if you think about it, it's really hard to be able to produce something that you don't have a model for when you're not getting direct access to it, especially if everyone who's around you, like thinking of a daycare or like being in a more public space at that young age, if everyone around you is wearing a daycare, you're really not getting those visual cues for producing speech as you normally would. I think one of the concerns that parents have had expressed to me, and I think again, it's like a nuanced response, is that the children are not communicating because they haven't had access to socialization. And what I tell my parents is that for about the first three years of their lives, children actually get all their socio-emotional and communicative needs met by their caregivers. So if they have a caregiver at home that's grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, whoever, who is 
constantly engaging them in developmentally rich experiences then them going out and seeing all of their friends in the park or lack thereof is not necessarily going to impede their development as long as they're getting some of those same rich experiences from their caregivers. So I think I have, yes, I have seen an increase, but I think it's also an an increase in concern with family members wanting to make sure that their children are on track. But I think, yeah, because of the mass, children are not getting access to a lot of the visual cues and a lot of the input that they should. And it's hard to model what you can't see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you have anything else that you wanted to cover before we jump into some of the questions that I received for you specifically? I don't think so. I think we did pretty good. Okay, perfect. Okay. So you briefly talked about this between 12 to 18 months as far as like how many words does it jump any this person specifically asking about 18 to 24 months does it jump at all into that Mm -hmm. age range yeah so at 12 months we would want to see one to five words 18 months would be 10 to 50 then at 24 months it would go 50 to 300 and then at 36 months which is three years it would go from 250 to 1000 again keeping in mind that the lower end of the range is going to be the milestone so this is what 90% of children are doing and then the higher end of that range would be the average which is what 50% of children are doing so usually we're looking towards the the lower end so producing at least 250 words by 36 months or producing at least 50 words by 24 months now as a speech language pathologist are you actually like single-handedly counting all these words Tran? so what i that is a very good question so when i go into the home I try to be that person to, as soon as I get out of the house, go in my car and drop down everything that we talked about. So when I'm reflecting back on my notes, yes, I do have a running list of words. And I also tell my parents, if you have, you know, not necessarily an iPhone, but I haven't used any other phone, so I wouldn't know. But if you have a phone with a notes app, or if you need to download a notes app, Every time your child produces a word, just pop it in there. It takes just a few seconds just to pop in the words. And then we can pretty much tell where we're at and if we're making progress towards the milestone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's see here. My two and a half year old is missing consonants at the beginning and at the end of words. Should I be concerned? Yeah. So that would be called a deletion. So that would be an initial consonant deletion or a final consonant deletion. So final consonant deletions for two years old is pretty appropriate. Initial consonant deletions might mean that there is something else going on that could Mm. warrant a speech language evaluation. Can you give just a couple examples of each of those? Yeah. So saying pa instead of pa for like popping a bubble, that would be a final consonant deletion. They're getting rid of the P at the end of the word Mm -hmm. Um, versus saying at instead of cat. So they're Mm -hmm. deleting the initial consonant that might point to something else that might be going on in terms of articulation. So that is a little bit more concerning. Yeah. Then the final consonant deletion. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. If her child is missing both, then she that would probably be grounds to at least talk to the pediatrician about it. 
Yeah. And I'm happy to also share it in the show notes or for you to add in the show notes because I don't have access to the show notes. I can share with a chart that talks about phonological processes, which is what those errors are called. And phonological processes are errors that children produce as they're learning to produce sounds. Just like if you and I were learning a new language, we would make some errors in how we put those messages together. But as children grow, those errors should be eliminated by a certain age. So it's nice to be able to go back to that phonological process chart and see. And I think also, one, there's two points to make to that. Are they not producing sounds that are not developmentally appropriate, like the S sounds for a two-year-old or the R sound? Because we might see errors in those because those are not usually mastered by two-year by two-year-olds anyways. And then two, you can always go in, do an articulation screener with a speech language pathologist or request a comprehensive eval if that's more appropriate, and then see what your speech language uh, pathologist determines in in terms of needing services. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are some factors internally and externally that can affect or hinder a toddler's speech? So I think there's lots of different things. So I think not having access to a language rich environment or not having access to language input can definitely impact the child's language development. Hearing loss can also impact a child's development. If you're thinking about it, if they can't get the auditory input, if they can't hear the input, then they won't be able to reproduce the input. Also ear infections, which I had the delightful experience of experiencing one as an adult. Ear infections can also contribute to late language acquisition because to children and to myself, because I experienced it as an adult, it does feel like you're underwater and sounds are just being warped and morphed. So if you can't really get a clear input, you're you're not really getting a clear input to your brains and to your ears, then it's hard to really know what the person is saying. And then it's hard to produce language. There are definitely medical diagnoses and genetic syndromes that can also contribute to language. And then sometimes it's just like a true delay. And the child needs additional supports to be able to catch up. I just wanted to plug in that your child's being in a multilingual environment does not delay their language. This notion is very antiquated. So at one point it did exist, but it no longer exists. And I know because my sister, when she was when she was three years old and she had two words, my family was told that it's because not only were there three languages in the home, but there were always also constantly people coming in and out and they were also speaking different languages. That can create shame in a family. And that can that can make a family feel like they can't speak their native language, one, with their child or multiple languages in the home. And also it's not true. The research shows that a child being in a multilingual environment does not delay their language. Which is something that still is goes around. I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things that it's like you can't get rid of it. Can't get Um, rid of it. But I just, first of all, I would absolutely love that for my own children. It's like one of those things where, you know, when a child, a a child is going to best pick up another language when they're young. And so to tell someone that it's just doesn't even make any sense because it goes against everything that we know because children like the best time to teach them a second or third or fourth language is when they're young and picking up these sounds and words mm-hmm. at a young age. Yeah. So it's like Exactly. Oh gosh, and also crazy. if there if there is, is a delay present, right? It's present in both languages if there is a true delay. So that's not yeah. 
that's not, or if there's some kind of like disordered language, it's not going to be because they have ac- they're having access to multiple languages versus one language. Right. Is tiptoe walking associated with delayed speech? Not that I know of, Lindsay. So I'm not really sure. I'm not really no, sure it might be one of those things like, I don't know, so. maybe you've seen, and, and this is more of a question I think for like pediatricians might see that a little bit more, yeah. but or unless all your kids are coming in tiptoeing, Joanne. No, they're not. <laughs> Let's see here. Differentiating between speech delay and ASD or other disorders. Oh, okay. So I think that definitely warrants the expertise of a developmental pediatrician. So if I suspect that there may be signs of autism, which I mean, if there is a delay present, there's a delay present and that needs to be addressed anyways. But if I am with a family or in the family's home, and I am suspecting signs of autism spectrum disorders, which is ASD, then I would refer them to a developmental pediatrician. So if that's something that you do have a concern about, I would reach out to the developmental pediatrician. And what I tell my families is that these professionals in these facilities have extended wait lists. And that is not a joke. They're like six, the best that I've heard is six to eight months, but really six to 12 months. So if you do have a concern, making an appointment as soon as possible, and then seeking out any additional services in the interim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. So what age should kids outgrow mispronouncing words? Example, think instead of think. Oh, okay. So that would be a fricative simplification. And TH, I think, is acquired around six. So it would really depend on what sound that they're mm, producing. Sounds and age. On. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the depending on the sound that they're producing the error on, then we would look at the age of math, which is when a considerable percentage of children produce that sound. So 90, over 90% of children will, will have mastered that sound by that age. So depending on what the error is, that's when we would be concerned about whether or not it's a phonological disorder or if it's still just the phonological process, which means that they're acquiring the sound and making errors, but it's not a sound that they needed to have mastered anyways. Wow. It's just so in depth. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Relationship between tongue and speech delay. Meaning what? Do you have any I more I think she's just saying, that? as in, I know it's very vague. I think she's just mentioning like what could be going on if there is a speech delay that could be tongue related. What I can think of is if they don't have very good range of motion of their tongue, and sometimes that can be contributed by a significant tongue tie, that if they don't have really good range of motion because they're so restricted, then that can lead to them making errors in some sounds, and that can lead to them not being able to produce speech as they as they the best that they could. So with the information that you gave me for that question, that's one thing that I can yeah, yeah. potentially point to. Yeah. And I feel like that's sometimes, I guess it would depend on how bad the tongue tie is, but sometimes diagnosed earlier on when either the baby's trying to breastfeed or taking from a bottle or things like that. Sometimes it's pretty obvious that they might have a tongue tie because of how they're able to drink milk. But I guess if they have a minor one, it might not be right as obvious and it might not exactly. be something you see until later on. Exactly. Um, I say for that, sorry to interrupt you, but for yeah. that, I would say to consult if you're having concerns about feeding, obviously consulting with a breastfeeding consultant or a lactation specialist, and then also getting second opinions from a speech language pathologist and also, also an oral myofunctional therapist. Those are some 
some, oh my gosh, I can't get my words out. Those are some professionals that would best be able to support you and also an airway centered ENT and dentist. Those are also other good professionals to be able to really solidify that diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just to reiterate, I know we talked about this. The concern is the concern how they're pronouncing words or with how many words they say. And from what I've gathered thus far, it's a combination of both depending on the age range. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So depending on their age range and what milestones that they should be meeting, it is a concern about how they're producing it and how intelligible they are, which is how and how much an unfamiliar person can understand them. And then also the number of words or the volume of language that they're producing. And in terms of intelligibility, we do like to stress an unintelligible listener because a lot of times, well, like a thousand percent of the times, families will be familiar listeners unless they are just not having lots and lots of direct access and experience with their child in like a natural environment. A lot of times families will not think that there's a concern because they they are able to make out the message because they have access to the errors all the time. So they become the translator versus a new person coming into that space and having an, a verbal exchange with the child. They might be saying, you know, what? Or can you say that again, sweetheart? Or I didn't understand, or I think you said that. So that might be a key pointer that the child is not producing the sounds as they should be because another person is not understanding them that's not familiar to them. Okay. One last question. There's a bunch, but I'm going to start. I'm going to stop after this one. <laughs> There's so many for this. I told you, like, it's just, it's a, a, hot, it's just topic. a hot topic. It we is. should do this again. I know, right? You had mentioned earlier on, and I want to clarify for everybody because this is not something that many people know about, I don't think. So you had mentioned trying to get into a developmental pediatrician. And this person's question is, what do I do if I have speech concerns, but I can't get into a developmental pediatrician? That's not necessarily the question I want to ask you, though, because we talked about that where you can skip that hoop and at least try. You could probably try to call another pediatric group or you could try to Google like speech language pathologists in your area. But do you want to just briefly say, I mean, what a developmental pediatrician is because it is different than just your pediatrician that might be treating your child. So they they have, it's like a subspecialty. Yeah. Your general pediatrician will be looking at the overall growth, safety, and nutrition of your child versus a developmental pediatrician is specifically looking at different areas of development, like fine motor skills, gross motor skills, cognition, communication, which would include the language and speech, and how they are progressing developmentally in those areas. So whereas a a general pediatrician might not be able to make that diagnosis of a language delay. A developmental pediatrician would have the skill set because it is a mm-hmm. subspecialty to be able to make that diagnosis and make an appropriate referral. Yeah, yeah. For those listening, I think at least my first step as a parent would be you can call your pediatrician's office and just say, hey, do you have a developmental pediatrician that's part of this group? Because they very well may have one. And you might not know that right off the bat just by knowing their name, but they might have one in the office already or they might a referral from like the town over or something of one that, that you could reach out to. It's just nice to know and have that information in your back pocket should you ever need it. It's just good information. So I think so that I'm going to stop there with those questions but I'm going to ask you the two random questions I always ask everyone. And so I know you're not a mom. I just want you to have us listen to one piece of advice that you would give just anybody, just like a like good life advice that 
you might have lived through that you want to give to us today? Yeah. So I think maybe two pieces of really good advice is there is a saying in Haitian Creole. So I speak Haitian Creole in French. There's a saying in Haitian Creole that says asking is not stealing. So that kind of notion of that saying is that if you need help by you asking, you're not stealing anything from anyone. You're not inconveniencing anyone. And it really behooves you to be able to ask for help or ask for information because it's not doing a bad thing. And I think that's information that can really relate to a lot of people, especially parents. If you do have questions too, I think it's even the most applicable. By you asking, you're not taking from anyone. You're not inconveniencing anyone, especially if you're asking a professional. And if you have concerns, seeking help is not bad, right? So asking is not stealing. And I think also that you can never really be ready for a lot of things. You just need to start. That's something that's really helped me in my professional career and just in my personal life. It's just, just you're ne- you're never ready. So you might as well start now. <laughs> you're yeah, as ready yeah, as yeah. you will ever be. So I think that would be two pieces of advice that I would offer. Perfect. People. I love that. Yeah. All right. So the last question is, if you could make a meal for yourself, that's <laughs> really yummy and relatively quick and easy, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I should start this by saying that I am not a cook by any means. I am terrible okay. at cooking. I've had um, people say McDonald's or pizza yeah. or nuggets. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I think I can make myself a quick meal that is really yummy, that I think is really yummy because I'm a fake New Yorker, it would be a bagel <laughs> with lots of cream cheese. Hey there. <laughs> is it a plain bagel though? Or is it a flavored like- bagel? So, okay, I'm like a little bit funky. So here we go. I either like a plain bagel with a crap ton of cream cheese, or I like a cinnamon raisin bagel with plain cream cheese, but then I like to put pesto on top of it. That is weird. Right. It is very weird. I was expecting weird, but that's weird. (laughs) That is very odd, and it doesn't make sense to anybody, but the the raisin and the pesto, I swear they go together. You it's know what? Like Anybody that thinks it's weird flavor. has to try it first. I think you should give it a try. It. It's yeah. delicious. So interesting. <laughs> well, now I feel like I might have to try that sometime. I think you should do it. I'll let you know what I think about it. <laughs> Basil pesto, though. Not, not dried okay. tomato pesto. It needs okay. to be green. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love it. All right. Thank you so much, Joanne, for taking time out of your busy day to chat with us about this really important topic today. I really appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.